Welcome to the New England Law Review on Ramon podcast. I'm the Volume 48 Executive Online Editor, Louisa Gibbs. And I'm Volume 48's Editor-in-Chief, Mike Martucci. The New England Law Review is the flagship publication of New England Law Boston, which is located in downtown Boston, Massachusetts. To learn more about our institution, visit the website at nestle.edu, that's N-E-S-L dot E-D-U. And to learn more about our publication, go to newinglrev, that's N-E-W-E-N-G-L-R-E-V dot com. There you can find our most recent On Remand article about how the Massachusetts Appeals Court treated the concept of consent in artificial reproduction in Ocali v. Ocali. We also have our most recent up-to-date Massachusetts Criminal Digest, Issue 1, and our current print issue. We're here today with Professor Peter Carroll of New England Law Boston to discuss his latest piece of scholarship entitled The Constitutional Limitation on Trademark Propertization, which explores whether the federal government has the constitutional authority to propertize trademark law. Professor, thank you for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. So, Professor, could you please start by explaining what exactly trademark propertization means and how it differs from how trademarks are usually treated? Of course. So I'm going to start off with the definition I actually use in the article and then explain what that means, if that's okay. So the definition I use here is the grant of some degree of legal protection to a trademark's signifier disconnected from any referent goods or services. So what do I mean by that? Well, trademarks are really made up of three parts in their classical sense. One is the tangible symbol, like the word Nike. That actual word there, Nike, is what we think of as the trademark's signifier. Then there is the referent to which that signifier is attached, like a pair of sneakers. That's the good or service to which the signifier refers. And then finally, we have this abstract concept called goodwill, which is what we call the signified. And those three things together, the word Nike, the good or service, the sneaker, and then this abstract good feeling about it, those three things together traditionally make up a trademark. The concept of trademark propertization is the movement by Congress and and others to protect just the signifier standing alone. And in simple terms, then, it's the protection of the mark as a mark, forgetting about the good or service itself. So we're just protecting the symbol in the abstract at that point. And so this article is very much about just how far Congress is able to push its authority to protect just trademarks as marks without regard to thinking about goods or services. Thank you, Professor. And how has Congress or the courts treated this issue in the past or even presently? Well, from the past perspective, this actually goes way back constitutionally to the 19th century when the original uh, constitutional trademark case came out, which was known as NRA trademark cases. And that case basically stands for the proposition that if Congress wants to regulate trademarks, it has to do so under the Commerce Clause. Now, the Commerce Clause is very familiar to many of us from the Affordable Health Care Act cases, and part of this article is very much trying to fast-forward and say, well, if the Commerce Clause is the basis for regulating trademarks, as opposed to the Patent and Copyright Clause, which is what some people think trademarks are regulated under, they're not. So if it is the Commerce Clause that does it, in the past decades, we've seen a real retrenchment in Commerce Clause jurisprudence. In other words, the courts are much narrower now than they had been about what they are willing to grant Congress the authority to regulate under the Commerce Clause. So the question then becomes, well, how far does that go? And that's very much what this piece is about. And what's, what was interesting to me was that as I looked through the case law, ever since the um, trademark cases, Congress has really focused its regulatory authority on where the goods or services are flowing in commerce. So remember, we talked about the three different aspects of a trademark. It's really the a fixation on the reference and where those goods are going that has been a lot of that you see in the case law. So, for instance, 
if we want to say, can Congress regulate a small local sale of a shoe, we might ask, did that shoe ever cross state lines? And we're talking about the trademark related to that shoe. We're going to focus on where the shoe went, not where the word Nike went. It's where the shoe went that the word was attached to. Similarly, from the Affordable Health Care Act cases, you might remember talk about whether or not we can regulate things under what's called Category 3 constitutional regulation. And that is whether something substantially affects commerce, even if it's not actually in commerce. So an example of that would be, well, let's say somebody sells a knockoff brand of Coca-Cola at a small local restaurant. There are cases that say, even though it's just a small local sale, that small local sale of knockoff Coke has an effect on commerce because Coke, the product, soda, is in commerce, and that small local sale of the knockoff substantially affects that interstate sale of the real Coke. Thank you, Professor. So you just mentioned how Congress does treat trademarks under the Commerce Clause. So why doesn't Congress choose to treat it under the Patent and Copyright Clause? Good question. Initially, it tried to. It thought that it had the authority to do so. There's a, a clause in the Constitution separate from the Commerce Clause, which grants Congress the authority to regulate basically what we think of now as patents and copyrights. And they originally thought, well, trademarks are just basically like copyrights. They're things that you create. They're artistic works that you create and put into commerce. And that was basically the argument um, in the original Trademark Act cases that I mentioned as to why they can regulate these weird creatures known as trademarks. Well, the Supreme Court looked at it and said, no, no, no. Trademarks are not necessarily new. They could be just normal words, like apple, right? That's not a new thing to the world. Um, there's no real creativity that we think of in terms of copyrights, which involve creating something new. So it's really not appropriate to regulate it under the Patent and Copyright Clause. Now, I just want to do a little aside here, a nitpick trademark professor thing. People often refer to this as the Intellectual Property Clause. I get a little annoyed by that because trademarks are intellectual property, but they are, as we see, not part of that clause. So basically, the Supreme Court in the 19th century uh, told Congress, you've got to stay under the co Commerce Clause because these are not new creatures. So, Professor, just going off of that um, and this narrowing of uh, under the Commerce Clause jurisprudence, what implications does that have for the actual trademark owners, um, good or bad or otherwise? So it's an interesting question, and part of what I argue in this piece that's forthcoming is that there is actually a constitutional limit on how far Congress can go in protecting just trademark signifiers. Remember, that's just the mark as a mark. Now, brand owners, like the large famous brands like a Nike or a Coca-Cola, generally want more and more ability to protect the brand in the abstract. Um, so to give you an example of what I think Congress cannot do as a constitutional problem, Let's say I come up with a new trademark. Uh, the one I thought of for today was Sparkle Horse, which is the name of a band that I like. But let's imagine that nobody had ever come up with the word Sparkle Horse as a, a mark before. Let's say Congress moves us in the direction of what we think of as a civil law regime and says, instead of saying that in order to get trademark rights, you have to use Sparkle Horse in connection with some good or service, like a pair of sneakers or Coca-Cola, to start your rights. Let's say Congress says, no, you just think up Sparkle Horse and you claim rights to it, then it's yours, and you own it as a trademark. And brand owners like that idea because they want as quickly as possible to be able to protect and carve out a world for themselves where they can protect their trademark before they connect it to goods or services. Kind of like warehousing is a word that's often used in that regard. My argument is that Congress, under these recent precedents and other for other ish reasons, cannot do that. So Congress needs to connect it to a good or service, needs to find Sparkle Horse being used in connection with a band, for example, a music band, um, before federal rights can attach. 
Um, Professor, and just um, a corollary of that, what does that mean, um, not only to the brand owner, but more importantly to the consumer? That's a great question, Mike. And uh, the reason why it's a great question is because there has been a large body of criticism of trademark propertization and that phenomenon based on exactly what you're talking about. Trademark propertization is thought to benefit primarily brand owners. Now, if we think about the main reason we have trademark law, it's often thought of to be consumer protective. Uh, prevent you from buying that bad uh, Coke in the marketplace that you didn't think you were getting. You thought you were getting real Coke. So it's a consumer protection-based idea. By contrast, trademark propertization is much more about retaining brand value and protecting brand owners by themselves and kind of putting consumers to the side. So while I do think that having a constitutional limit on trademark propertization would impact brand owners, I don't think it would have as much of an impact on consumers because, after all, propertization is really protecting brand owners and not thinking about consumers as much. Thank you. So bearing in mind the role of Congress with trademark propertization, do you think that there should be some kind of constitutional limit to regulate this, and why or why not? Thank you. So I actually see that as sort of two questions within one. The question the article really approaches is what we think of in law as the descriptive question, which is how would the current Supreme Court or how would the current law treat a purely propertized trademark regime, like the one I talked about before that said you could have rights without any good or services just from the beginning. And I answer that in the negative. There is a constitutional limitation, and Congress could not go that far. The separate question, which I want to approach in later scholarship, is a very interesting one and a very controversial one, and that's the normative question on what does this mean and is it good for the world to have a rule that Congress cannot propertize trademarks? Another way of looking at this is what level of government should be making that decision? Should it be the states? Should it be municipal governments? Or should it be the federal government? Because after all, the question here was not so much about whether any government can propertize trademarks, but simply whether the U.S. Congress can do it under the way our Constitution works. So the question that people often have upon when I talk to them about this piece is, well, is it really a good thing to have states regulating these things and not the U.S. government? After all, do we want a patchwork quilt of 50 different rules on how you can protect trademark signifiers in the abstract? And the answer to that is, is complicated. I haven't fully formulated that, and that's part of my future research, but I don't think it's as obvious as people think. There's a knee-jerk reaction to say, well, of course we want one uniform rule across the country. When you think about what trademark signifiers really are, we're talking here about language. We're talking about symbols. Disconnected from the good or service, a mark is just a symbol. And if we take the good or service out of the equation, the idea of what level of government should be regulating how we use language or how strong symbols are connected in our mind to certain sources, well, to me, that's a question that gets much more to the way we use language and could be much more of a community-based decision. And it's not uh, so far-fetched to think that we might want to be pushing that decision down to a more local level. Thank you. So one last question for you, Professor. Where and when can people get access to this article? So I'm pretty much just putting the finishing touches on it right now. I plan on posting it very soon to what's known as the Social Science Research Network, or SSRN. And if you just search my name, it should come right up in the next week or so. So that's going to be the easiest place to find it. And hopefully I'll be sending it out to law reviews and looking to get it published uh, sometime next year. Thank you. And so keep an eye out for Professor Carroll's article, and he's also written a number of other articles on trademark law, some of which can be found on the New England Law Boston website, which is nesl.edu, and just search for his name, Peter Carroll, on that website.
And forthcoming online with our print publication, we will have information about Volume 48, Book 1, which will be available under the forthcoming page, and more from the Massachusetts Criminal Digest, which will include the cases of Commonwealth v. Cummings and Commonwealth v. Gray. Also, if you missed our symposium entitled Benchmarks Evaluating Judicial Efficiency, then you can listen to our interview with Professor Singer about what bench presence means and why it's so important for the future of our court system. And again, our website is newinglrev, that's N-E-W-E-N-G-L-R-E-V dot com. I'm the Volume 48 Executive Online Editor, Louisa Gibbs. And I'm Mike Martucci. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for more from the New England Law Review on Remand podcast.